once again to the Perimeter Church podcast. Theft is big business. Last year, Americans lost $10.3 billion to various scams on the internet alone. But theft isn't limited to money or physical items. Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues the series, The Ten Commandments, with this sermon entitled, Do Not Steal, which covers Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Today's scripture reading comes from Exodus 20, 13 to 17. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Shauna. And let's read aloud together our prayer of illumination. Gracious Father, your word is able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Through your spirit, give us spiritual ears to hear it, spiritual eyes to see it, spiritual taste to desire it, and spiritual hearts to receive it, that we would not be fools, but wise. In Christ's name, amen and amen. Well, if you're just jumping in with us, we have been in a series for several weeks now walking through the Ten Commandments. And you may hear that and you may think, uh, I, I don't know, Ten Commandments, that sounds like a bit of a boring series. It sounds like a series that perhaps, you know, is just about rules and making me feel bad. Well, that's not our heart in doing this. In fact, we've labeled this sermon, the Ten Commandments, the heart of God for the heart of man, because we believe that what the Scripture teaches is true in that, that God's law shows us the heart of God, that long before it condemns us, long before it crushes us, showing us our need for a Savior, it actually invites us in, that God's law is actually an expression of his heart to see who God is, yes, to see what his standard is, but to see him, to see who God is. And I think most of us, I know it's certainly my propensity, most of us approach the Ten Commandments and God's law that is summed up in the Ten Commandments, uh, approach it from a negative sense. And we approach it naturally, meaning this is how humanity has always approached God's law, his rules, his restrictions. Because think about it. If we go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, the account of sin coming into the world in Genesis chapter 3, is this not exactly what Adam and Eve did? I mean, think about it. When, when the serpent tempted Eve, when he tempted Eve, what did he convince her of in the first question that he asked her? He asked her a question that wasn't an accurate question because he is the deceiver. So he's going to manipulate and construe, misconstrue God's words. God had given them a command that they can eat of any tree in the garden except for one. And there's one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that he, that he put restrictions around. And he said, any other tree, and we don't know how vast the garden was, we don't know how big it was, but we're, we can assume it was, it was plenty of trees, lush, full of fruit and full of good food. But this one, you may not eat of. Now, we could go into some long uh, 
thing here about, well, why did God do that? Why did he restrict anything? Well, we're not God. So at some level, we can just say it's mysterious, but we can also know that part of what God was doing there was to drive his people to obedience and to see if they would indeed obey. Because even though God is sovereign over things, over all things, he created man and woman with free will. And so he puts this tree in the garden and he restricts just one tree. But what, is, what does Satan ask Eve? The first question he asks her is he says, did God really say that you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? Did you hear it? It's not what God said. But in that subtle change of wording, where God said you can eat of any tree except one, he said, did God really say that, God, that you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? In that one little subtle twisting, Eve is hooked. The hook has been set. And she goes, yeah. What's going on in the heart and the mind of Eve at that moment is God's holding something good out for me. He, he's keeping me from something that would be really good for me. How dare he? Why would he withhold that from me? Not realizing that who God is is unbelievably, immeasurably generous and kind to give the whole garden and say, you could eat of any tree. She fixates on the one, the one restriction. And then, don't miss this, she then defines God's character from that restriction. Assuming that what God is restricting from her is more significant than what God is giving to her. And she's also believing in that moment, this is important, she's also believing that God is not ultimately giving restrictions for her good. That restrictions are in some way meant to be given by God in a way to withhold from us some level of good that he could have for us. So listen to how, listen to how uh, Sinclair Ferguson sums that up in his book, The Whole Christ. He says this. Now all Eve saw was a negative command. One small object near the eye can make all larger objects invisible. Now it was the sight of the, of the forbidden tree blocking her vision of a garden abounding in trees. Now she could not see the forest for the tree. Now her eyes were on God, the negative lawgiver, and judge. In both mind and affections, God's law, don't miss this, God's law was now divorced from God's gracious person. Now she thought God wanted nothing for her. Such a heart sees the Lord as a slave master and not a gracious father, as restrictive rather than generous. Ferguson goes on to ask a very important question, getting at how do, how do you see and approach God's law, his rules for us. That again, these laws are given actually not only to show us the heart of God, but they're for our good. In fact, human flourishing is experienced within the design of God in what he has restricted and in what he has given. So it's for our good, but how do you approach them? And so he asked this question, uh, Ferguson does. He says, is God's law fundamentally a contract or fundamentally a covenant? And what's the difference? And it's important, if you believe it's a contract versus a covenant, it'll change how you approach God's law and approach God himself. So a contract is this. A contract is negotiated. It's a two-way street, and it's a negotiation, and it ultimately says this. I will be your God if you will live like my people. I will be your God if you will live like my people. That's a contract. 
but a covenant. God consistently tells us throughout his word that he approaches us and deals with us and engages with us, not by way of contract, but by way of covenant. And a covenant isn't a two-way negotiation. It is a one-way promise. And a covenant says this, I will be your God, notice the difference, therefore, not if, I will be your God, therefore you will be my people. I will remain faithful to you even when you are faithless. How do you see God's law? It's a covenant, by the way. Yes, it's rules and regulations and restrictions, but it's God ultimately saying, even as you fail in these things, I will be faithful. I am the one who keeps the covenant. So as we continue in our series, we're at the eighth commandment. We're nearing the end. And you may be thinking, oh, thank goodness. I had one person tell me before the nine o'clock service, I just can't be convicted anymore. (laughs) When will this series be over? (laughs) Because naturally, you know, gosh, you read the commandments and at face value, they are what they are. You just, especially the second table of the law, that second half of the commandments where they get just really short and to the point. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness, which is lie. You shall not lie. You shall not covet. You you covet and you go, okay, all right. Some of those, I feel like I can just read and go, I get it, move on. And at the surface level, they are what they are, and there's much, much to be talked about there. But then with each one of them, as we study Jesus' teachings, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount and some of his other teachings, we begin to realize, okay, we dig into each one of these, and it's much more than what I thought it was. That Okay, I've never murdered anyone, but Jesus taught that if you've been angry with someone in your heart, then you've murdered them in your heart. And you go, oh, whew. okay, that's a different story. For some of us, we would, might say, well, I've never committed adultery. But then you begin to understand that Jesus, Jesus teaches that adultery at its core is, is lust. And if you've lusted after another in, in your heart, then you've committed adultery in your heart. And you go, oh, come on, <laughs> really? Well, similarly with this Eighth Commandment. This Eighth Commandment, eighth, eighth commandment you shall not steal. You might be tempted to think, finally, I don't, I'm not, I'm not a thief, okay? Finally a commandment for other people. And then you realize through the teachings of scripture that what, if, if anger is at the heart of murder and if lust is at the heart of adultery, then selfishness is at the heart of stealing. And we all, all of us, all of our hearts are flooded with selfishness. We are all bent because of that Adamic residue, that, that residue of Adam that we're born into ever since the garden. Every single one of us are selfish. We're bent towards self-protection and self-preservation and self-promotion and all the self-stuff. And stealing at the core is motivated by that very selfishness. You know, in some ways, stealing is glorified in our world. I mean, think about it. Some of my, admittedly, some of my favorite movies over the years are centered around stealing. The Italian Job, Ocean's Eleven, Twelve, Thirteen, Thomas Crown Affair, Catch Me If You Can, Should I Go On? You know, and I love, these are great movies. You're like, man, it's a good movie. And then you step, take a step back and you go, that whole movie, I was cheering for, for people 
to steal. What is wrong with me? What and, and when they pulled it off, it was like, yeah, come on. This is awesome. You know, we live in a world that glorifies stealing. And, and for, the, for, the, for the Christian, and even for the moralist, you don't even have to be a Christian. You can read the Ten Commandments. You go, I can see, I can put together logically why stealing is not good. It defrauds another for the sake of my benefit. I get it, okay? But I think where we're going to land today is that even, even deeper than that, I'm an offender. I'm an offender of, of the Eighth Commandment, not even so much because of what I have done or will do, but because of who I am and my nature. And I desperately, I desperately need to be made new into the image of Christ. Because ultimately, listen, ultimately stealing it's, it's not wrong just because God says it's, says it's wrong. I mean, that should be enough for us, but it's not just that. It, again, it goes deeper than that. Stealing is wrong because it is antithetical. It is the antithesis of the very character of God. Because who is God? The most famous verse in the Bible, at least over time, is John 3.16. And we are told in brief there the very essence of the character of God. For God so loved the world that he gave. In essence, God is, yes, he's love. But because of his love, he is the eternal giver. So the opposite of stealing is not to not steal. The opposite of stealing is to give. That as we are being made more into the image of Christ through faith in Christ and his spirit is at work within us, doing this internal work of regeneration and renewal within us, making us more like him, then who are we? We're not just people who don't steal. We're people who give abundantly, lavishly, just like our Savior. So we have to ask three questions working our way through this teaching that I think helps us get more into the heart of what's in this commandment. So the first question sounds so very like basic and simple. Do we have to ask that question? We do, and I think hopefully as we work through it, you'll understand why. But the first question is simply, what is stealing? Now, again, at the surface level, stealing is what you think it is. It's taking from others what is rightfully theirs. Taking from others what is rightfully theirs. And you don't have to teach, by the way, we, we don't have to be taught how to steal. You've been around a two-year-old. You know, I didn't have to sit, or, sit down with my kids when they were two and just say, hey, let me, let me let, let you in on a little something here. When your brother has that toy you want, here's what you do. You go swipe it and you yell mine. And then you take it and make him cry. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't have to say that, right? I mean, it just happens. It's, 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 we're hardwired for it to take from others what is rightfully theirs. But let's dig a little deeper and let's let the Heidelberg Catechism help us with this. This catechism was written in, in the 16th century by uh, two, two guys that were 28 and 26 years old. Sometimes when I think back to, I mean, John Calvin, when he wrote the Institutes, was like barely into his 20s. Like, why were they so brilliant back then at such an early age, you know? That's one of the thoughts I have. Anyway, and they were, they were 
tasked, or they had this idea to write this catechism to help the church, to help the young people of the church and the young pastors of the church understand the whole of the Christian teachings in a very approachable way with a question and answer format. So the 110th question that they ask is this, what does God forbid in the eighth commandment? And the answer is this, God forbids not only those thefts and robberies which are punishable by the magistrate, but he comprehends under the name of theft all wicked tricks and devices, whereby we design to appropriate to ourselves the goods which belong to our neighbor, whether it be by force or under the appearance of right. Don't miss that. Under the appearance of right. And then they list some of the ways that that might happen in that day and time in the 16th century. This would be by unjust weights, L's. L's were a former measure of length, usually in the textile industry. Measures, fraudulent merchandise, false coins, so counterfeit money. Usury, usury is the charging of unreasonably high interest rates. Or, or by any other way forbidden by God. And then they mention this. is also all covetousness, all abuse, and waste of his gifts. Interesting. It's not just the taking of physical things, of land, of property, of money, possessions, although it's certainly not less than that, but it's so much more than that. Even such that my covetousness, my not doing what I ought to do for another is the breaking of the eighth commandment. It's stealing foundationally, fundamentally at the heart level. John Calvin, who I mentioned just a moment ago, he tries to help us understand this by saying this about the Eighth Commandment. He says, the violation of this commandment is not confined to money or merchandise or lands, but extends to every kind of right. For we defraud our neighbors to their hurt if we decline any of the duties which we are bound to perform towards them. Hmm. All of a sudden... The standards are ratcheted up. The application is significant and is broad and is deep. Let me give you some examples. Try to help bring this home of like, okay, what is, what's ultimately being pushed in here? What's being pressed into our hearts to help us understand what's going on in the forbidding of stealing? So first, let, let's just think about it this way. Uh, we can steal by damaging someone else's reputation, from taking from them what is rightfully theirs. So what's at the heart of this? Well, have you ever thought of gossip as a form of stealing? Because when we gossip, what are we doing? We are gossiping in such a way that someone else's reputation would be damaged, would be defrauded, would be lessened, and usually, almost always, the, the motivation for that, remember I said all this is rooted in selfishness, the motivation for gossiping to steal from someone their reputation is to build my reputation up, to make me look better, to position me against them in such a way to where I look like the better party at the expense, at the taking of their reputation. So that's a way of stealing that we probably don't often think, oh, that's a breaking of the eighth commandment. Another way that we can steal is, is we steal other people's dignity 
by our apathy and by, by our indifference and avoidance. This is what Calvin was ultimately getting at. That when we see among us, among image bearers, among humans, needs that people have that would give them dignity, that would, would restore unto them the dignity that they have as an image bearer, and we refuse to engage with it, even minimalistically, even prayerfully, then we, in essence, are breaking the Eighth Commandment because we are not giving to them what is appropriately theirs, and therefore, in essence, we're taking it from them. Now, this is a hard one in the sense of uh, it can feel so very overwhelming to think, how am I supposed to be engaged with all in the world that's going on around me where people are being stripped of dignity? I mean, think about some of the theme of what we've prayed for this morning is the ministry that we partner with, No Longer Bound. And then Shauna, she came with Nightlight and, and the ministry they do with sex trafficking. It's overwhelming. But what, what, our, what our application is is simply this, that when we're made aware, let's just take sex trafficking for an example. When we're made aware of this grotesque, awful industry, and the darkness, the, the grip that the enemy has on so many lives where these people are being stripped of their dignity as humans, that we would be moved with such empathy that we would engage. And even if we aren't called individually to engage with that in the way of leading a ministry like Shauna or maybe perhaps even giving money towards it or whatever it may be, that collectively so much of the scriptures are the application is for the church, collective, corporate. How are we engaging in such a way to where that could change and that we could give dignity back to people who've been stripped of it? That's part of living out this commandment. We can steal as parents. We often steal from our kids as parents. How? Well, by not giving to them what they need. Well, you go, well, I give everything my kids need. I don't, I don't necessarily mean from a possession standpoint or just even from a provision standpoint. What I mean is this. I'll speak personally, okay? This is just me. See if you identify. Regrettably, there are far too many times where I am not noticing the cry of the heart of my child for my presence for my affection because I'm too engrossed in the screen in the front of my face. I'm engaged in something that is so less important. And so what am I doing? Stealing from my child what they need from me. It's a breaking of the eighth commandment. We steal from our spouses. One of the ways in which we steal steal from our spouses is that we, we focus so much on what they're not giving us that we fail to recognize and live out what, what I need to give them. We can become so fixated on the sin of our spouse that we don't recognize the sin in our own hearts that's keeping us from loving our spouse the way that God's called us to. Now, I want to be careful with that because sometimes the sin of your spouse is so great that it has to be dealt with. You can't ignore it. And there has to be repentance and so forth. But in the day-to-day, -day, we can get into a rut where we believe that my, that my spouse owes me something. And when we live that way, we're stealing from them by not giving them what they need from, from you.
We can still in, in business. This is probably the one that you might think of the most where uh, some type of embezzlement or some type of surcharge that's not appropriate or fair or some type of interest rate that's hiked up, you know, th these kind of things. But it can get a lot more subtle and a lot more personal than that. And some of us are guilty of that. We know it and we need to confess it if we haven't already. We've taken money that's not ours. And, and the application for you walking out of here today will be, I need to pay that money back and I need to go to that person and confess it to them if they don't know it. Even if that person is my boss and even if it costs me my job, I'm gonna trust that the Lord has me. But we, we steal in business when we are more concerned with the bottom line than we are with the person across the table from us who's an image bearer. We steal when we embellish that, uh, that expense report. We steal when we scroll through social media on work hours. It's not what we're paid to do. Stealing time from our bosses. We steal when we call in sick and we're not sick. You know, these, are, these are all issues of taking something that is not rightfully ours, but appropriating it as though it is. And now all of a sudden you see how this second table of the, of the law starts meshing together in ways to where really the anger that is at the heart of murder and the one coming up next week with lying is all meshed together because the lying feeds the stealing and the anger feeds the lying and the, so forth. You know, we, we talked about with that anger piece, you know, gosh, in some ways I think it's listed before these others because deep down we're angry about life. Things aren't the way that they should be. And ultimately, who are we angry with? Yes, we express our anger towards others, but we're ultimately angry with God because things aren't what they should be in our minds and he's the one who controls all things. And so why isn't he changing it? And so the anger that we hold so deep within us actually fuels a lot of times the lust because we think we have the right to lust because I'm just mad. Which also can then feed the stealing. When you look at pornography, what are you doing, by the way? And that's adultery. When you look at pornography, what are you doing? You're stealing the dignity from another image bearer. Regardless of whether they want to be used that way or not, that's not the point. What are you doing? You're contributing to that stealing of their dignity while also corrupting your own heart and your own mind with images that God never intended you to see outside of your spouse. We still, because we're lazy and we're overwhelmed, a lot of times it's just, we're just overwhelmed with life and to steal from others is the easy, most quick, uh, the quickest option to get what we ultimately want. I mean, think about it, cheating. In school, what is cheating? Cheating is, I didn't do what I was supposed to do. I didn't study, I didn't put the work in, so what am I gonna do? I'm gonna do the easy thing. I'm gonna look at your paper, I'm gonna get your answers, I'm gonna take them as though they are my own. And that could be out of, out of a sense of laziness. It could just be, I'm so overwhelmed. I've got, practice, I got practices until nine o'clock at night and I just don't, didn't have time to study, I was too tired. Instead of talking to parents about it or coaches about it and saying, how can we figure this out? You just go, oh, let's just cheat. And if Mrs. Evans, ninth grade Spanish, is watching this, I'm still sorry for when I cheated on that test. <laughs> I wish I could say that was the only time that happened, but that was the time I got caught. Um, <laughs> plagiarism. 
stealing, right? I mean, that's an easy one, but think about it. I mean, you're taking someone else's work and attributing it to yourself as though it was yours. In 2008, there was a, an anonymous survey done among pastors. And in the security of that, uh, you know, that anonymity, I never can say that word, anonymity, there we go, um, pastors answered honestly in 40%. I hope these numbers have gone down since 2008. But 40% of pastors admitted to plagiarizing sermons, to listening to other sermons online or reading other manuscripts online, and then just regurgitating them to their congregation as though it was theirs not giving credit. We're all tempted to do, to do this. We're all tempted to steal. So here's the deeper question even still. Why? Why do we steal? Well, as we've established, because of, because of selfishness. It's at the root of it. But let me give you two more reasons that dig into that. We steal because we're desperate. We're desperate. We're desperate for all kinds of things. For wealth, for a title or position, for fame, notoriety, recognition, approval. We're desperate. We're so desperate for people to give to us what we think they owe us or to get a to, to achieve certain circumstances or realities in life that, that we think the only way we can make that happen is at the expense of others. And this goes in close proximity to plagiarism, but just in general, even if you're not giving a presentation in front of people or you're writing a paper that has to be turned in or whatever, just think about how oftentimes in your life, how many times in your life, you've taken the idea of someone else and used it as your own. Why? Why would we do that? Why would, we, why would we be in this conversation over here and hear something that someone says and you go, wow, that's brilliant. I would have never thought of that. And then you walk over here into a totally different conversation, maybe the next day or the next week, and it's not with the same people, and you share that very same idea as, as your own. Why would you do that? Well, because we're desperate. Desperate for what? To be seen as brilliant. To get the approval of those around us such that they would go, wow, how did you think of that? Not knowing that you stole it. It was never yours to begin with. We also steal, not just because we're desperate, but this is at the real heart of it, because we're distrusting Yes, distrusting of others, but just like the anger, how yes, we manifest anger towards others, but ultimately our anger at the heart level is against God. Same thing here. We distrust God. The sovereign Lord who is over all things and who is the giver of all things, we struggle to trust in his providence and in his goodness to give us what we need. And a quote her, I think, every week so far in this sermon series, but I just love the way Jen Wilkin words this. She says, we convince ourselves that the unseen God is unseeing of our needs and that what he's given us today for this moment in time and history at this juncture in my life is what I need, even if it's not what I think I need. 
We know this principle to be true as parents, don't we? We don't always give our children everything that they think they need. We give them what we, what we know they need, and that's love. That's provision. That's care. But then when it comes to the Lord, we want to take matters into our own hands, quite literally sometimes, where we begin to take things that aren't ours because we don't think he's going to give what, us what we need. So we steal because we're distrusting. And we're ultimately distrusting of God left unto ourselves. I mean, think about it. This is as old as time in the sense that, uh, go back to Genesis again. Genesis chapter 27, what do we read? We read the story of Jacob stealing from his dad and from his brother. He steals the blessing from his father and he steals the birthright from Esau, his older brother. Now here's the craziest thing about that story. Craziest thing about that story is that before Jacob was even born, it was promised that he would be the one who would receive the blessing and the birthright. I mean, you would think that before we were born, God had told our parents, hey, this is what you're gonna get as their child that's gonna blow their minds. And you would think that if you knew that, you would go, okay, I'm gonna trust that the Lord's gonna provide that. But even Jacob, and we would be just like him, even Jacob got to a point where he didn't think it was gonna happen. He started logicking, uh, you know, reasoning with his own brain rather than the mind of the Lord to begin to think, well, my older brother, the older brother in our culture always gets the inheritance. So I got to do something here to make it happen. And so he stole. Stole the blessing from his father and the birthright from his brother. So last question, how do we change? How do we change? Well, we have to keep asking that question. Well, uh, first, in order to be what we God is wanting us to be and making us to be, we have to, we have to ask, apart from Christ, who are we? And as we keep saying, we're selfish, but let's be more blunt about it. We're not just selfish, we're thieves at heart. That's who we are, apart from Jesus. We're thieves at heart. Because in our nature, we most naturally want to image the serpent rather than the Savior. Because go back to the garden, who is the serpent? John 10, chapter 10, verse 10, tells us who the serpent is very clearly. Beginning of the verse, it says that he has come to steal. The thief has come only to steal and kill and destroy. This is the serpent. And, and by nature, this is who we are. You, don't have to, you, you only have to do a five-minute survey of the news right now to see that this is at the heart of humanity. This is what we, this is what we chase after. To, to steal and to kill and destroy those around us to get what we want. And by our nature, this is who we image. But what's the good news of Jesus? On the very next part of the verse, he came to steal, kill, and destroy. Who is Jesus? Jesus says, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. You see, Jesus... I said it earlier, Jesus is trying to get us to understand that at the heart of who God is in giving this command is not just to say, hey, don't steal. He's, he's giving this command to say the opposite of that is just, it's not to just not steal. It's to give, to be an abundant giver. Like who? Like Jesus. So what's our hope for change? Is our hope for change to grit our teeth and just stop being a thief at heart? 
No, that will be a, a, an exercise of futility. You'll just get so discouraged over time because you can't change what's true of your nature. But Jesus can. And so part of putting our faith in Jesus is not just to inherit eternal life and be forgiven of our sins, but to be transformed from the inside out more into his image day by day until we're with him in glory. And part of what he's doing is he's transforming us away from thieves into those who are generous givers just like him. Because remember, who is he? Who is God? God so loved that he gave. He gave. I mean, think about, we, we get some really beautiful pictures of thieves in the scriptures who were transformed. Zacchaeus, wee little man. Straight from the word of God, just kidding, doesn't say that. But it does say that he's short. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. And he wasn't just a tax collector, he was a chief tax collector, which meant that he had tax collectors working for him, underneath him. He was their boss. And tax collectors in that culture were hated by the Jews because they were employed by Rome to take money, tax money from the Jews and give it to the enemy, Rome. But in the meantime, almost every tax collector, if not every single one of them, would charge a, a significant surcharge and pocket it and get rich off the backs of their people who were usually in poverty. They were hated. So Jesus is walking through Jericho and Zacchaeus couldn't see him. So he gets up in the tree because he's short. And Jesus walks up to him and says, hey, you, of all the people in the crowds, he goes to the, to the tax collector. And he says, I'm coming to your house to eat tonight. And there's a lot of things that happen that we're not told about between the time that he comes down and they get to the house and they have dinner, but we know about the, the end result. Here's the end result. The end result is that Zacchaeus, by the end of the evening, sitting with Jesus says this. He says, behold, Lord, notice that he's calling him Lord now. Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And, I, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold. Transformation has happened. How does transformation happen? How does change happen? We encounter the living Christ. We invite him into our hearts such that he does a work that only he can do. And we become people who used to be thieves to get whatever we wanted for our glory. And we give it away because we've encountered a better glory, a better reality. Jesus, the abundant giver, and he makes us like him. He doesn't just give back to the poor. He doesn't just restore to those that he has been stealing from. The, the Old Testament law says that when you've defrauded someone, give it back and then add a fifth. He doesn't do that. He goes above and beyond. He gives fourfold. He's imaging his savior now, not the serpent. And it's beautiful. Think about Matthew, the tax collector. He makes one of his 12 disciples a hated tax collector. And Matthew's life is changed from being those who take from those uh, who, who are poor. And he gives his life in poverty to the cause of the kingdom. Think about Jesus on the cross. Who was he crucified between? Thieves. Thieves condemned to death. And one of those thieves turns to him and says, remember me today. And he turns back to him and he says, you will be with me today in paradise. Don't miss the beautiful picture that Jesus is shouldering the sins of the thief while he transforms the heart of that very thief. And he does the same for you and me. He says, bring it all to me. I will shoulder it in the very essence of who I am will become the essence of who you are. We move from being those who 
It's not just moralistic behavioralism that don't steal. We are people who are transformed from the inside out. It's a saying that, uh, that I heard in the past. It says this. It says, givers have to set limits because takers don't have any. You know, I think God hates that saying because it goes against the very nature of who he is. Aren't you glad that he didn't set limits with us takers? Limitless grace, limitless mercy, limitless love, limitless patience, limitless compassion for us. Because what do we do? We give to somebody and we say, go and be blessed. And then they come back and they say, can I have it again? And we say, um, okay. And we don't tell them to go and be blessed, but we give it. And they come a third time. We say, you got to stop. You're bleeding me dry. What does God say? I pour out my grace upon grace upon you, my love, my mercy. It's yours. Forgiveness, it's yours. Acceptance, it's yours. Righteousness, it's yours. I give and I give and I give. And who are we? We just keep taking and taking and taking and taking until we literally bled him dry. And he says, take all of me. I'm yours. Father, help us to be a people more like Jesus. Transformed from the inside out by Jesus to love what he loves, to hate what he hates. Help us to be a people who understand the rich life. The rich life is not one of stealing, but one of sacrifice. Do a work in us that only you can do. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.